so glad you're here this week. Normally, uh, we're always doing a teaching series. I mean, we usually move from one teaching series to the next. Sometimes we walk through a book of the Bible together. Uh, sometimes it'll be uh, thematic and we'll talk about um, a particular theme for three, four, five, six weeks in a row. Um, we do a number of different things and uh, we're kind of in between series right now. We wrapped up a series two weeks ago, um, a few weeks ago, and we're about to start an Advent series, which is kind of, it starts at Thanksgiving traditionally and leads us all the way into Christmas. And so we had a few kind of gap weeks in there that um, I, I didn't really want to start a new series because it just wasn't that much time. And, um, and it's kind of hard to do like a big teaching series when you only have a few weeks to, to do it. I feel like we just don't do the, the topic or the particular passage um, due diligence when we push through it really quickly and don't cover everything. So we just decided for these few weeks, we're going to kind of fill in the gap with just kind of some one-time messages that aren't necessarily related to each other, and there's not necessarily a connection. Um, well, that's what I had planned, um, but it sort of kind of changed, and God kind of took control. And um, the last few weeks, we've actually referenced some people out of the Old Testament, and at least on my part, coincidence, and um, I just thought since we're kind of in this middle period. We're not doing really a series right now. I would take this week um, to kind of tie some of these things together, uh, and we'd go ahead and just stick with the storyline that we had been creating anyways. Uh, And so we're going to be a little bit in the Old Testament today. Now, some of you are familiar with your Bibles. You know your way around the Bible. So if I say, turn to Exodus, there's no problem there. If I say turn to Joshua, there's no problem there. Um, not all of us are that comfortable with the Bible. And so I want to encourage you, first of all, the scriptures that we're going to look at today will be on the screen. But if you do, if you're someone who likes to open the Bible and follow along yourself, um, we are going to be in Exodus 14 for just a, a little bit. And we'll be in Joshua chapter 3 for just a little bit. And I'm telling you that now to give you a heads up. Because you may want to look in the table of contents, it may make it a little easier to find your way, just because the Old Testament books can be a little bit challenging to find. Um, and so you can use one of our Bibles, you can use your own Bible, you can pull out your iPhone and, and use your Bible app like Billy does, or like I said, they'll be on the screen for us in a little bit. So let me, let me give you some big picture stuff. Um, first of all, how many of, of you in here love history? Okay, so like, was it 40, 50%? So to the other 50 just don't fall asleep. Okay? Yes, there will be a test. That's how you get out of here today is when you pass. And if you don't, you got to listen to me do this again. So, okay. Uh, Not really. For anybody who's new, not at all. Um, So let me just give you some big picture stuff. It's really not a history lesson. I just want you to think big picture. Because so many times when we talk about stories in the Bible, you know, you're like, hey, I've heard about Moses. I've heard about Abraham. I've heard about David and Goliath. But, but we don't have any idea how they connect. The Bible is one great story. It's God's story of how human beings screwed up the world, and he's come to fix it and bring about redemption. And it covers from the moment it got messed up to the moment God is going to redeem it all and fix it all and bring about his final solution. And then a lot of little things in between. All right? But it's one great story, and I want to show you how some of these things connect today. And, and the reason I'm doing this is because some of these things we've been talking about the last few weeks. And so I've got like a little diagram up here um, just for you to look at. And we're going to start with Abraham. 
Um, and so these are some big key points that if you're familiar with church in the Bible, this will sound familiar. If you're not, and you don't know much about um, the Bible and, and the Christian story, and you've not spent much time in church, don't worry about it. Um, this is just to give you a little context. Um, but if you don't know all these details, you're certainly not going to be lost today. So um, we've talked about Abraham a number of times, and um, one of the most famous people in Jewish history and certainly in Christian history because we kind of inherit um, some of the Jewish story. Uh, so if you had a Jewish Hall of Fame, which that's not a real thing, um, at least not that I know of, but if you had a Jewish Hall of Fame, Abraham would probably be number two, maybe three. All right. Definitely way up there. Abraham is way up there. And so Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, um, God calls out to him and says, I'm going to do something very special with you. And I am going to bless you and your family so that you can be a blessing to the rest of the world. And as a part of this blessing, he says, I'm going to give you more descendants and, and your descendants will outnumber the stars in the sky. He says um, that I'm going to give you a land that you can call your own and that will be a special blessing and possession for you and your descendants. And I'm going to continue to bless you so that you can bless the rest of the world. And it was a blessing that was supposed to be distributed so that all the world could be blessed by God. And he was going to do it through one particular group of people. So Abraham, um, so we're going to move down. Abraham has a son named Isaac, and then Isaac has a son named Jacob. And then Jacob has 12 sons, and the youngest is Joseph. So a lot of times in the Bible, you hear Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so these are kind of the three patriarchs of the Jewish faith. But we get to Joseph, and, and now I'm starting to make some connections because we talked about Joseph two weeks ago. Joseph uh, is a great guy. He's a little spoiled, and his dad favors him. And so his older brothers try to get rid of him, and they sell him to a slave trader. The slave trader ends up taking him to Egypt. While in Egypt, God blesses him and uses him in a pretty big and cool way. We're not going to go through the whole story. Um, but eventually, Joseph winds up to be the number two um, next to Pharaoh in Egypt. A great famine happens, and because of Joseph's leadership, um, all of Egypt was prepared for the famine. Joseph's brothers and his father Jacob were not prepared. And so when they began to starve, they heard there's food in, in Egypt. And so Joseph, uh, his brothers, and his father end up making their way to Egypt, uh, where Joseph, despite how they had treated him, he takes care of his family. And so now we see this Abraham and his descendants. Now his descendants, Abraham's dead by this point, all of his descendants are now in Egypt. So that's how the story winds up in Egypt. And um, because of Joseph being sold into slavery and then all of his family coming there to get protection and food under Joseph's rule and reign as the number two in Egypt. So we're in Egypt now, and here comes the number one most famous uh, guy if there were a Jewish Hall of Fame. Um, so go to that next slide. Uh, Moses. So if there were a Hall of Fame, Moses would be number one. Definitely the most famous, most well-known, and um, because God does some really cool th th things through Moses that um, Jews even to this day cherish. And so here we see Moses born um, while the people, Abraham's descendants, we call them Hebrews at this point in history, while they're slaves in Egypt. So Moses is born a slave, um, but through God's providence and protection, he ends up being adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. 
And so though he's a Hebrew by birth and nationality, he's raised as an Egyptian in the royal household. And so he's born in Exodus chapter 2. So there's some biblical references there just to give you some some context. Um, Moses eventually realizes he's not an Egyptian but a true Hebrew, um, has a heart for his people, and God calls out to him. This is what we talked about last week. God calls out to him, calls him to a new and special purpose and says that you're going to lead my people out of slavery in, in Egypt. And this is that famous line, you're going to go tell Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let my people go. And um, Pharaoh refuses. And so 10 plagues come. And that's where we get the story of the 10 plagues um, of Egypt. And Hollywood loves this story. I mean, in the last 10 years, I know of three movies that have been made out of Hollywood about this particular event. I mean, the, the most recent one, God and Kings, with starring Christian Bale was about this event, the exodus and those plagues. So the plagues come, and eventually Pharaoh gets so tired of suffering and seeing his people suffer that they literally tell the the Hebrew people, get out, get out of our presence, get out of our nation. We don't want you here. You being here is eventually going to get us killed. God obviously wants you free. We're not going to stand in his way any longer, although it took 10 plagues and a lot of destruction before they got to that point. So in Exodus chapter 12, we have the great Exodus. That's why the book's name's Exodus. All of these people are leaving Egypt. About 600,000 men, the Bible tells us, not counting women and children. And so they all leave in a really quick and rushed uh, fashion because the Israelite, I mean, the Egyptian people are trying to kick them out um, from their presence. So then, as the people are leaving, they come up to the Red Sea. Now, they're at the Red Sea, and Pharaoh has changed his mind. Pharaoh has said, I made a great mistake. I should never have let them go. They were our slaves. We owned them. We controlled them. Let's go get them back. So Pharaoh pursues the people, and they're at a dead end. There's mountains on one side, a military outpost on the other side, and the, the Red Sea in front of them, and Pharaoh's fast-approaching army from behind them. So this is going to give us some context, and we've already talked about, we've referenced Abraham, we've re- re- referenced Joseph and then uh, two weeks ago, and then last week we did Moses. And so I wasn't intending to create this, this sort of um, connection um, in this little brief time between series, but God kind of worked that out, and so we're just going to pick up with it today. So we're going to be at Exodus chapter 14, just to look at a few verses. And this is where the Hebrew people are going to cross the Red Sea. And just as a point of interest, not because it's terribly important, but um, they're referenced, they're always called the Hebrew people at this point in history until they leave Egypt. And now they're known as the Israelites. So when you're reading the Bible, and sometimes it talks about the Hebrews, sometimes it talks about the Israelites, same group of people. The difference is before they exited out of Egypt and after they exited out of Egypt because they went from being a people to a nation. So they went from being the Hebrews to the Israelites. So that's not terribly important for today, but it may make some sense of you reading the Bible and getting confused and trying to figure out some of these name switches. So Exodus chapter 14, and we're going to read in verse 19 and 20. And like I said, this will be on the screen for you to help you and And this is what it says. So God has been leading his people from Egypt up to the Red Sea. And and the Bible tells us that during the day he was leading them um, by a huge pillar of cloud 
a huge cloud pillar during the day, and then a pillar of fire in the sky at night. That's how he was leading the people so they would know where to go. And so that's how they've been following God and how he's been leading them out of Egypt. It says this, verse 19, Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. So this cloud that had been leading them makes a switch, and it's now behind them. And it says, coming between the hosts of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near to the other all night. So we get this cloud that has been guiding the Israelites now switches to behind them. And God uses that cloud to keep a separation between the pursuing Egyptian army and the Israelites. And so this buys some time. So the, the Egyptian army doesn't catch up to these people and destroy them and kill them or recapture them to be slaves. And so we see God's presence moving behind them to protect them. Then let's look at verse 21. It says this. So this is the big moment. I mean, this is the Hollywood moment. This is the climax of, um, of all the stories, including uh, the most recent one, that one with Christian Bale. I mean, this is the climax here. Verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left hand. This is uh, one of the grand stories of the Old Testament. One that, um, you know, if, if you went to church as a child, this is one of the, the stories that you heard about. This is one of the, the favorites. This uh, did anybody grow up old school with like a flannel graph? Anybody had flannel graphs growing up? Really? Only a few of you? Okay, so so maybe this was a southern thing. Well, you grew up with it, but I know where you grew up, and I know that church, so I know why. Um, so back in the old school days, there was like a flannel board, all right? And to tell stories, they had like little cutouts of people and animals and boats and whatever else you needed, and they would use these to tell children's stories. That's, that's, how, that's how we did it in the South, at least. And uh, so this was like one of the favorites, right? Show the parting of the waters, all of the people crossing over the Red Sea on dry ground. Now, we're gonna, not going to read it, but um, once they get to the other side, uh, God is going to give Moses instructions. Hold out your staff over the water again. The waters will come crashing in and will destroy Pharaoh and his army as the final kind of testimony of God's power over Pharaoh. Pharaoh was considered a god, um, certainly after his death, but during his life, um, the Pharaoh of Egypt was to rule and act on behalf of the gods. So Pharaoh, while he was alive, was sort of seen as half god, half man, uh, but his responsibility to it was to rule and to reign on behalf of the gods. And so um, God proved his power and authority first in the ten plagues, by controlling all of nature, uh, and Pharaoh was left without was left helpless. And then here, the final destruction, God proving his power to all of the world, uh, that he's the one and true and supreme God. And so this is the, the, the story that, that uh, so many people love to tell. So many, uh, so many children's books cover it. Uh, you know, this is one of the big illustrations in a children's Bible. Such a great story. And I want to make a few observations about it. Um, for us today. Um, the first one is, I want you to notice that um, what happened, Moses held his staff out over the water, and the waters parted, and that's when the Israelites 
went and crossed over the Red Sea. And I think this is an important point that we need to remember, something that we need to hold fast and dear to, is that God goes before us and clears the path. Now, not always. Sometimes the path is rocky, but so often God is the one who goes before us and clears the path. When, it, when life seems impossible, when our circumstances Im- seem impossible, when we're at a dead end in our life, God goes before us and clears the way. And he does it in such a way that only he can get the credit and does it in such a big and powerful way, just like he did here. Here's another observation that I think is, is really cool. Um, we didn't read the whole story because we're trying to move a little quickly, but four times in, a very sh- in just a few verses, um, the Bible says that, that the people walked on dry ground. Now, four times in a very few amount of verses. It's, one of, it, it's, it's repeated more than any other phrase in this story. That the people walked on dry ground. I want you to stop and think about it for a moment. Is that even a necessary statement? Much less to say it four times. How important is that statement? I mean, if you think about it, first of all, well, we know they didn't walk on water, so some of it we can assume. Uh, another thought is, well, the water's parted, so that seems like an extra unnecessary detail to tell us, much less to repeat it over and over and over. Uh, another thought is, too, like, is it even that important? I mean, so what? Maybe the water, maybe the, the ground was muddy. Maybe it's a little marshy. I mean, it is a river bottom, a sea bottom. But wouldn't it still be a miracle regardless? I mean, aren't these extra details that maybe we don't need to know? Well, here's what I, I think. Um, this story is written very intentionally. As you start to read the Bible and you start to read these narratives, what you'll realize is a lot of details are left out. I mean, it would be impossible to give us every detail of every story that we have in the Bible. John, when he writes his gospel, as he's concluding his gospel, says, uh, these are not all of the miracles and teachings of Jesus. If all of them were to be written, um, the world couldn't contain the books that, that, it, that it would take. So even in Jesus' life alone, the, the guys who write about Jesus say, we didn't include everything. That would have been impossible. We included what was most important. So Moses is writing, trying to give us the most important details, and he repeats himself over and over and over. They walked on dry ground. They walked on dry ground. They walked on dry ground. It's because Moses wants us to know that God doesn't do anything half-heartedly. Would it have been awesome if they had walked in two inches of water? You bet it would have been awesome. It would have been a crazy miracle. Because instead of drowning, instead of walking a hundred feet underwater, they would have only walked in two inches. It still would have been incredible. When Jesus fed the 5,000, there were 5,000 men, maybe 15,000 total people. He took five pieces of bread, two fish, and the Bible says everybody got to eat as much as they wanted. Now, would it have been a miracle if everyone had had a snack? Yeah. It would have been a miracle to feed his 12 disciples and get them a snack out of that little amount of food. It it would have been incredible if everybody had gotten just a little bit of, of food to tie them over until it was time for dinner. But the Bible says that everybody ate until they were full. They ate as much as they wanted and there were still leftovers. 
happens. God doesn't do anything halfway. When God shows up, he shows up big. Here's my third observation. Um, Notice all of the the directional details that we get. The, The Israelites are being led by a cloud over above them. And then they walk on dry ground. So we get these details of above and below. And then if you remember specifically from verses 19 and and 20, uh, it said that that God's presence moved from before them to behind them to stall the army. And then as they're walking through the Red Sea, it says specifically that the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left, above, below, before, behind, right and left. God has surrounded His people. There's no place that they can't look to see God's presence. Now, does that mean they always saw it? No. Does that mean that you and I always see it? No. But it doesn't mean He's not there. Sometimes you and I um, have these obvious moments where there's walls of water on both sides of us that Our path has been cleared and it's obvious and easy to see God at work. And then other times we wonder if he's there. And just to make a connection that the people in the Bible are just like you and I. Three days after this takes place, the Israelites get hungry. They're looking around. I don't see no food. Where's the buffet? So then they ask Moses, did God bring us to the desert to die because he just didn't want us to die in Egypt? Because we're starving to death here, Moses. I mean, three days after seeing this incredible sight, they're like, I bet God hates us. He probably brought us here to starve us to death. And you and I make that same mistake sometimes. We see God move in a big way, and then a few days later, we're like, "Ah, I don't know, is God there? Sometimes we see it, sometimes we don't. But God is always surrounding his people. So that's the Red Sea. Now I want to show you something else that's cool. Um, there's actually another story of God's people crossing a body of water in a miraculous way. It's not very well known. We don't talk about it as much because it's, it just doesn't, just doesn't make the headlines as well. But I want to show it to you, and I want to, sh- I want to compare and contrast it with the one we just looked at. So um, kind of jumping back into this mode of uh, summarizing um, I, want, I want to show you this. So right after the crossing of the Red Sea, the Israelites go to Mount Sinai, uh, Exodus 19. The Ten Commandments are giving, given to them in Exodus chapter 20 right there at Mount Sinai. Um, and so uh, just to give you some context, um, the Israelite people are going to spend almost two years camped out at the base of this mountain as God teaches them and gives them rules and laws for living um, it gives them instructions about how they're to worship him. Um, and so the end of Exodus and all of Leviticus is them camped there at the mountain getting instructions from God. So that's what's going on. Okay. Um, then we move into the book of Numbers. So we're Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, if you're tracking with me. So now in Numbers chapter 10, they go into the wilderness. They leave the mountain, they head into the wilderness, and they're on their way to go inherit this land that God had originally promised to Abraham. 
So then we jump on um, further into uh, Numbers. So Numbers chapter 13, we have the spies. This is when the Israelites go and they spy in and check, take a look, take a little peek at this land God had promised them. And of the 12 spies that went, 10 of them came back and said, oh, we're in trouble. These people are too big, too scary, too powerful. We're just a bunch of nobody, no good slaves. They'll kill us. There were two men who said, no, it's not about us. It's about God. And God said he's going to protect us and lead us. So if God wants us to be here, he's going to take care of us and, and we'll be just fine. But all the people didn't hear those two voices. They heard the ten. They heard the ten that said, we're in trouble. And, and so they all started um, going crazy, freaking out, started going, oh, God hates us. We're all going to get killed. And so God said, because of your unbelief, I'm not going to let any of you ever walk into this land. If you don't have enough faith to trust me after all you've seen, I took care of you and I, I brought you out of Egypt. I split the Red Sea for you. I've protected you. Do you know for the last two years, every morning, the Israelites walked outside and, and their food was on the ground in front of their tents every morning. And they're going, I don't know if God cares. I don't know if he's paying attention. And I don't know if he'll take care of us. So God said, because you're unbelief, I won't let you inherit the land. I won't let you go into the land. I'll let your kids go in. But all of you, you're going to die in the wilderness before I let the people in. Your kids will make it, but you won't. And so then they have to start wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years till the adult generation died off and a new generation rose through. So then we come to Deuteronomy chapter 31. So if you know your books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, right? Um, maybe you got that far in your Bible drills as a kid. All right. So Deuteronomy is literally the name Deuteronomy means second law. Um, so the old generation died, the new generation raised up. So the new generation needed to hear the law again. Remember the one that they got in Leviticus when they were camped out at the base of the mountain? All those people were dead now. So De uh, Deuteronomy is the second law. It's God saying the same thing again to a new generation. And in Deuteronomy chapter 31, Moses is dying. Joshua takes the lead. Joshua is the new leader. And then we jump over to Joshua chapter 3. And in chapter 3, we see the people cross the Jordan River so that they can go into the promised land. That's the end of my history, I promise, for those of you that are barely hanging on. All right? So this, this great water crossing doesn't get much popularity. We don't talk about it much. We always reference the Red Sea. But I want to look and compare and contrast the two events together. Joshua chapter 3, starting in verse 14. It says this, So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan, with the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant, so the Ark of the Covenant is what is holding those Ten Commandments in. Uh, it's holding a few other things, but primarily the Ten Commandments. Before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priest bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now, the Jordan overflows all of its banks throughout the time of the harvest. So um, here's a little detail we're getting. It's, it's flood stage time. So normally, um, the Jordan River is flowing pretty well anyways, but now it's flood stage and the banks are overrun. So what would make a normal river crossing somewhat scary, it's now really scary because it's flood time. 
Uh, verse 16, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a, very, in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside uh, Zarethan, and those flowing down toward the Sea of Arba, uh, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. A couple of cool observations. Number one, we get the dry ground mentioned a number of times again in a really short story. There's one more constant reminder. As the people walked on dry ground, that God doesn't do anything halfway. When God moves, He moves. I think sometimes we fear or feel as though sometimes God does things half-heartedly. But He doesn't. Maybe you feel like He started to do a work in you, but you haven't felt His presence in a while. Maybe you remember when you first believed in Jesus and you were all fired up and passionate and, and maybe now some of that fire's died down and we wonder, is God done with me? Is, did He get the job started, but He's not going to finish? And uh, God doesn't do anything half-heartedly. The job's not over. His presence hasn't left you. And there's still many more great things to come in your life. Maybe you don't feel it in the moment. Maybe you don't see Him. But God's there because God surrounds his people. And so in this story, again, we get dry ground mentioned over and over and over. Second observation that I think is cool. This, the first time Moses held his hand out, the waters parted, then they all went together. This time, the priests go first carrying the Ark of the Covenant, which really for us represents God's truth. It, it was a container containing um, God's truth and, and evidence and reminders of how God had moved. For you and I, where do we find God's truth and where do we find evidence of how and when and where God has moved? For you and I today, it's the Bible. It's God's truth and it's evidence of what He's done in the past. That's what the Ark of the Covenant was. It carried His truth, His word, and evidences of past movements. So the Ark goes out before the people. And then everybody has to pass the ark as they cross the river. As a constant reminder of who's getting the credit and the glory for this and, and whose power is at work. You know, I think there have probably been times in all of our lives where, where we were constantly reminded of God's movement and then maybe we slowly started to forget it slowly started to forget looking at the signs and the truth. You know, I've originally, most of you know this, I'm from Oklahoma. Elaine and I have been here um, right at almost just past eight years, been in Colorado. And uh, how many are not native to Colorado? Non-natives. So one, two, three. We got three natives. Four. Four natives. Hey, that's better percentage than I thought we'd have. Four native Coloradans. So everybody else can relate. You, maybe not so much. All right, so um, do you remember when you first moved here, how amazed you were at the scenery? At least when you're from Oklahoma, the scenery here is much better, okay? It's more than wheat fields and cattle. You remember when you moved here and, and just the, the constant sight of the mountains? 
Now, when we first moved here, too, we were living in Littleton, and we bought a house in Morrison, which is right in the foothills. It was unbelievable and just constant amazement. How long did it last, though? A couple weeks? A few months? If you've lived here very long, how, how often do you see the mountains on a daily basis without any thought to it? They're just there. They're a part of the landmark. That's how I know where West is. Whatever you use the mountains for, they're just there. Now, occasionally we get those moments where we're like, uh, maybe it's right now. They're just starting to get snow capped. And it's that reminder how beautiful they are. Maybe you take a special trip to go see in October, the leaves change on the aspen trees and It's kind of that moment where you're like, man, they're here all the time. I just hardly, don't even hardly notice. I think sometimes we do that. As the people were walking by the Ark of the Covenant, it was supposed to be this constant reminder to them. Don't forget who's in charge here. Don't forget who's powerful, who's doing this. Sometimes in our lives we have those moments where we're like, oh, I'll never forget but then a few weeks go by, a few months go by, and God's there. We just don't really recognize Him. We know He's there. He just, it just doesn't push us to awe and inspiration. And sometimes God has to get our attention. And maybe even today for you can be that moment where you're like, God's there, and I need to recognize Him. I don't need to forget. You know, a lot of times Elaine and I will drive back to Oklahoma uh, to visit family. And uh, it's always so sweet as you start to make the drive back. And we always drive through Kansas so as we're, as we're <clears throat> heading west. As you slowly get closer and closer and the, the landscape of the mountains start to appear, you're like, ah, we're home. Like the mountains tell us we're home. And, and that's God's presence for us. And I hope today, whether you've noticed it lately or not, maybe today you'll feel God's presence, you'll see Him move, and you'll go, ah, I'm home. Here's my last observation. In the crossing of the Red Sea, Moses, God told Moses, hold your staff out over the water. Water's parted. But did anybody catch what happened this time? And we didn't read the instructions, we just read what happened. But God gives Joshua instructions, and then, it, and then it happens. God says, it won't be until your feet touch the water that the waters will part. Sometimes God moves out ahead of us, and He clears the path, and it's obvious. All we got to do is walk right into it. Sometimes God says, you'll know that I'm there, once you put your foot down. It's easy to take a step on dry ground when it's already dry. It takes a lot more faith to take a step in the water. Trusting God, it will become dry. Both miracles are beautiful and powerful and a testimony to God's goodness and glory and power. But what I love about this second story 
is that it wasn't until the soles of their feet dipped into the water. It says the water stopped. And the, and the ground became dry. God will move out ahead of us and clear the path before we ever get there. Sometimes. Sometimes God calls us to do something and we just have to take a step and do it. Whether we see the clear path or not. And God gave strict instructions to those men holding the Ark of the Covenant. He said, stand still in the Jordan. That's what he told them. Stand still in the Jordan. And they went and they stood still while the people passed by until every last one of them made it across. And it wasn't until their feet left the riverbed that the waters began to flow again. Maybe you're sitting here and you know there's something God's called you to do. And maybe you've been waiting for Him to clear the path. And maybe God's pushing you, speaking to you, challenging you. But on this one, you're going to have to take the step. Will you pray with me?